worshiping, and um, as we continue t- in this posture of worship, in this gathering to worship the Lord together, uh, the birds are joining with us out uh, they like to make their home here, and I find that on Sunday morning is the time that they make their home here the most. And um, I'm going to chalk it up to they're drawn, all of creation declares the glory of God. And uh, so the birds are joining in with us. Now, it may be a little bit of a distraction for those of you who may have a little bit of a ADD kinds of things like I may be prone to at times if you're trying to listen and you hear the birds and all that kind of stuff, but... Uh, we welcome the birds and their joining in of the praise of the Lord with us. So um, today, Mother's Day, um, wrestled over, was there a nice Mother's Day message to give to all the mothers? And the Lord just would not give me freedom. So we're going to talk about murder this morning. Um, (laughs) Take that for what it's worth there. But the Lord has something to say for all of us here as we gather together. Sermon notes are in your bulletin. We want to talk about, as we're in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, that the kingdom, about the kingdom and the counterculture of the kingdom, that in these next several messages, Jesus, two weeks ago, we we looked at the law and the prophets and the fulfillment. Jesus did not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. And so we see in these next messages, series of messages, how Jesus will say, you have heard that it was said. And he brings the law and he brings the Ten Commandments and various aspects of the law up to say not only do they still stand for us, but there's actually more to it. There's a heart level, deeper meaning to it. And so these next series of messages kind of follow this theme. And this morning, we want to look at this idea that it's deeper than murder. It's deeper than murder. If you follow the news at all, it seems like it's regular anymore that you hear of murders in our country, killings in our country, country, specifically mass killings. A mass killing is defined as four or more people, not including the perpetrator who are killed. And whether it's by gun violence at a mall or in a school, or it's an act like happened last week when a driver of a truck plowed his truck into a bus stop near a migrant shelter in Texas that killed eight. Whatever the, the, the instrument is, this idea of murder is prevalent in our culture. So much so that as, as of last, or as of May 7th, which is actually last Sunday, there have been 21 mass killings, four or more people in an instant, incident, which is over one per week in our country that is putting us on a pace for 60 in this entire year. Last year was one of the highest and there were 36 all year. The the disrespect for life is shocking, isn't it? It's shocking And, and we are people as Christians who believe that life is precious. From the womb all the way to the tomb, life is precious. We have as a vision for our church that we would be a place where Christ's presence, where Jesus as our Savior, our sanctifier, our healer, our coming King, where the presence of Jesus in our midst 
in our midst would bring life and healing and restoration. These are all life values. These are all life works. And so as, as we value life so much, it can be very tempting for us to look at the horrors that go on and the violence in our culture and in our country and, and begin to have kind of this feeling of moral superiority sometimes. Where we could feel like all those mass murderers and those killers and all those things, how horrible they are. But Jesus wants us to recognize that it's not just about upholding the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. But it's, it's much more than that. It's much deeper than just the physical act of murder. And so on this day that, that we honor mothers and their giving of life and their nurturing of life, I would encourage all of us to take a good look at ourselves to see how well we are doing at giving life and nurturing life in relation to the people and the culture around us. Because we want to be people of life. People of life. The sermon notes I mentioned in your bulletin have just two fill-ins, but there'll be more if you're a note taker, but I invite you to follow along as we work through this together. And we want to begin by understanding together, and we may have to click through this. We have to understand the intended meaning here. Verses 21 to 22, read it again. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. If we stop right there, Verse 21 is very clear, if we advance to the next slide, that murder is forbidden. Murder is forbidden. The sixth commandment that, Jesus, or that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai, thou shalt not murder. This does not speak to war. It does not speak to capital punishment. But it's the act of spilling blood in what we would today call a homicide, a murder. Jesus' uh, Jesus's listeners would have been very familiar with this command. And they would have been very familiar with the results of the command if it was broken. And that was the judgment of life for life. According to Old Testament law, anyone who committed murder would be subject to the judgment of their own death because they had taken a life that was in the image of God. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law in Jesus' day had limited it simply to murder in the actual taking of another life. And so Jesus is saying, you have heard that it was said. He is, a, he is affirming that murder is absolutely forbidden. As he said, I've not come to abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill it. I've come to fill it all up. And it's not going to pass away until heaven and earth pass away. And so murder, the taking of human life, still remains as against the commands of God. But Jesus had a deeper explanation of what this command was really after. Two deeper intended meanings. The first intended deeper meaning is this in what Jesus says, that anger without cause brings judgment. 
Anger without cause brings judgment. Verse 22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother, and now for some of you who may have Bibles in front of you, there may be a little note next to that. There is in my copy of the scriptures. Anyone who is angry with his brother, and then at the bottom, there is in that note, the little phrase, without cause. Some of the earliest manuscripts that we can find do not have that little phrase, without cause, but many after did. And what many believe is that the, uh, the scribes who were being able to, to kind of copy the scriptures over time knew what the intent was, and they had just kind of added this little editorial change to it just to be able to make sure everybody understood that it wasn't just you weren't to be angry, but you were to be ang- not to be angry without cause. And so if that is the case, Jesus is saying this, a heart attitude of anger without cause against a person will be subject to judgment. It is akin to actually murdering another human being. Anger without cause in the eyes of God is equal to murdering another human being. So let let me ask this question for us and we want to look at a couple scriptures. How do you determine then if anger is with cause or without cause. If it is a holy, righteous anger, it's okay to be angry about this. Or if it's just, I'm just blowing my stack and I'm angry about it and I'm angry at you and I can just pass it off and be like, well, I'm righteously angry. How do we know if it really is righteous anger and if it's me just, I'm just blowing my stack on you? Two scriptures I would like to turn our attention to. The first is James chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, which says this. My dear brothers, this is James, the brother of Jesus. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God Desires. Notice, notice the intent of what James is saying. There's this idea of life. That man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So what does righteous anger, what does anger with cause look like? Well, I believe if we run it through just kind of a grid that James gives us, we can evaluate whether my anger is with cause or whether it is uh, not. So that first part, everyone should be quick to listen. To determine if your anger is with cause, ask this question. Am I quick to listen with thought and understanding to the other person? You know, it's been said you can hear a person, but not listen to a person. Hearing a person is, I hear you talking, but I'm not really thinking through and receiving what you are actually saying, that I'm not engaging with the information that you are giving to me. I could hear you, and you're, you may even be to me like Charlie Brown's teacher. I hear you, but I am not being in a place of being quick to listen. I am not listening to you. I am not engaging what you are saying with thought and coming to a place of understanding. So that's the first thing to run through to know. Am I coming slow to listen, or quick to listen, with thought and understanding? Then secondly, out of that posture, are you, am I being in a place where I am slow 
to speak. How many of you have been in this spot? I find myself here sometimes too. The other person is speaking and I'm already formulating what I'm about to say. I may not have even fully understood what they have said because I already have my rebuttal to the thing that they just brought to me. Anybody with me on that? Anybody been there with me? It's very easy. You know what I haven't done when I'm doing that? I am not being slow to speak. Slow to speak and quick to listen, they form this, this joint action and thought process together. I am quick to listen. I'm listening to you. I'm engaging with your thought. I'm understanding your thought. I may even, before I respond, I may even say, what I'm hearing you say is this. Is that what you are saying? And many times, if you practice that kind of thing, you may find that they would say, no, that's not really what I'm saying. And then you're able to come back and you're able to say, okay, so explain it a little bit more. And they're able to give you more explanation of what they're saying. So that before you are ever coming to a place where you are speaking and responding, you have fully come to a place where they have, they have said, here's what I'm saying, you have heard it, you have given it back to them, and they're able to say, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Friends, I believe, and we do this, when I do premarital counseling with couples, this is like one of those most awkward things, but it's one of those most powerful examples of communication, good communication, that you are not allowed to respond to what the person is saying until they have fully affirmed that you have heard them and you can speak back what you are saying to them. So much of anger can get shut down and we can determine whether it's anger with cause or without cause if we can fully listen and know and be able to respond back, this is what you're saying? Okay, now I can speak. So often we speak over each other. We talk over each other. I want to show my point is right. And often I wonder if we actually hear what the other person is saying. Slow, or quick to listen, slow to speak, and then slow to become angry. A third question in processing anger with or without cause is does anger burst out or is it slow in rising. If it's slow in rising, after you've been quick to listen and slow to speak, and the anger rises slowly within you, it's probably much more of a righteous anger with cause. But if you hear you're not even listening and you're shooting back at them and anger's just raving and stuff coming out of your ears, you know, the old cartoon where they're turning red and steam's coming out of there. If that's kind of where you're feeling, most likely this is not anger with cause. One more scripture that can help us, and that is this. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 to 27. In your anger, do not sin. So it is possible to be angry and not sin. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. It is possible to give the enemy of our souls space in our souls. In this way, by being angry and continuing to let it hold us. So the third or the fourth question is this. Are you able to deal with your angry, anger quickly before the day is over? Are you quick to listen with thought and understanding? 
Are you slow to speak, not forming your response as they're speaking and not interrupting? And does anger burst out or does it rise slow? Ultimately being able to come to the end of the day and have worked through it so that you are not angry with the other person as the day comes to an end. Recently, I went to bed angry. And I tell you what, I woke up angry. The first thing I wanted to do was I wanted to go and show my superiority in being right. I can tell you firsthand, this is so true. Deal with it before the end of the day, even if you can't with the other person in your heart. Martin Luther said this, an anger of love that wishes no one evil that is friendly to the person, but that is hostile to sin. That is anger with cause. An anger of love that wishes no one evil, that is friendly to the person, but is hostile to the sin. It's a good description, I believe. So this first deeper meaning on this next slide is this, then. Anger without cause. It's not just physical murder, but anger without cause before God brings judgment. But there's a second part of the deeper intended meaning, and that is this. Insult of others brings judgment. So it's not just anger in my heart and in my attitude, but it's insult in the words that I speak. The rest of that passage in verse 22 says this. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus gives this second, deeper, intended meaning, and that is insult of others. Raka was an Aramaic term. It was an insult against a person's intelligence. It would be as if you were to come to someone and say, you're stupid. I mean, that's pretty hard. Not, not what you're doing, that action was stupid. You, you are stupid. Jesus says that this would be taking, could go to the Sanhedrin, which was the religious governing body in Israel. It didn't in Jesus' day, but he's saying, anyone who would say to another person, you're stupid, Raka, this insult of contempt, in his economy, in the kingdom of God, would be answerable to the highest religious governing body, the Sanhedrin. He said, not only that, you fool, it's an insult not against the person's thinking, but against the person's character. It was impugning them before others and likely even carrying the sense of condemning them to hell. Today we may hear it, someone being mad at another and saying, ah, go to That, that's, the, that's what it's carrying. That's the intent there. It's hoping that a person, even in the moment, that the person will end up for eternity in hell. One is a, an insult against their, their mental capacity. The other, a character impugning, saying to the point that I want you to end up in hell. 
So whether it's actual physical murder or whether it's anger against a person, an insult against their character, the issue is this. You want the person to be removed. You want them to cease to exist. And understand, you may say, well, I don't want that person to cease to exist. But what you may be saying is, I want that person to cease to exist in this situation. I don't like them in this situation. I don't want them in this situation. I don't like them as a person. And what may come out of you is anger and insult towards them. And while you may never come to the place of harming someone physically, your attitude and your desire is that they would be dead. Even if it was just for a moment. It's sobering. It's sobering because we, I think we all could find places in our own lives, some maybe not that far off in time, where we would think, I would rather that person not be around in the situation, in the relationships around me. I would rather that person not have any influence in my life. I don't want them around me. And what is in your heart is this, I wish they would just be gone. Jesus says, in the kingdom of God and before God, it is akin to murder. I believe in our culture we are becoming increasingly desensitized to this, to the, the severity of this. Because the next time you hear dialogue about politics or about morality or whatever it be in our culture, listen for it. Because this type of murderous interaction is becoming normalized and modeled by our national leadership. No longer is it disagreement over ideas, but it is now demonization of people. Listen for it next time. When you hear people talk about it, when you hear people talk about disagreement, it is no longer disagreement over ideas. It is demonization of people. And as soon as it becomes demonization of people, we are now very on the line, if not actually committing violation of the sixth commandment in anger and in insult. And friends, I, I wonder how much we actually recognize that this has happened. We talk about the, the frog being put in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the boiling pot or in the pot of water and then cold and then turning it up and it boils to death. This has been escalating over the last six, eight years, I believe. Maybe longer. But I've noticed an increase in the last six to eight years. And friends, I don't know that we as Christians even recognize it's been a slow increase to where it's no longer just an exchange of I don't agree with their ideas. Now it's them. I disagree. They are the problem. And the moment it becomes that, and we'll conclude with that idea in a moment, that is where we on that line, if not already be breaking the sixth commandment of do not murder. Friends, we must be above this. If we are people of life, we must be above this.
Jesus gives two practical illustrations than to be able to live it practically. He gives two realms. The first, in verses 23 and 24, is about living it with believers. Verses 23 and 24 again, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. And so in Jesus' day, if someone had gone to the temple to offer their gift and there remembered that there was a grievance that they had between them and another person, they were to leave their gift at the altar They were to go and make it right with the person they had the grievance with. And then once they had done everything to make it right, then they were to come back and offer their gift. So what does that mean for us today? Because we're not offering gifts at altars in the temple. Here's a way that it may play out. Today, if in the midst of worship, there was a person that came to your mind that you had a grievance against, Go in the midst of it. Stop worship. Find the person and do everything you could to make that grievance right. If in this next week you're in prayer or reading the scriptures or in personal worship and the Lord brings to mind somebody that you have a grievance against or has a grievance against you, stop. Leave the Bible there. Pick up the phone or go drive to find that person and go and work to settle the, the grievance. Then come back to reading, to worship, to prayer. Think about how serious Jesus says this is. We believe that we were, as human beings, created for one thing. To worship God and to glorify him now and forever. And if Jesus says if the main thing that we were created for is to worship him, and he says, stop doing the thing I created you to do and go make it right before you continue to do the thing that I created you to do? I think Jesus holds this up as very, very serious. I don't know, there have been times when people have come to my mind or I haven't realized, oh, I've got to deal with something there. And I just think, well, I'll deal with that after. I've got to finish my time with the Lord. Boy, this just puts a halt on me. It makes me say, you know what, as much as God wants my time to be devoted in worship and time with him, he is more concerned that I am right with others than I am even in that moment worshiping him. Because I believe that he views getting right with others as an act of worship as much as it is as me lifting my hands and singing praise to him. And if I can't go and get that thing right with them, then how can I stand before a holy God and lift up my worship to him? The relationship has death in it. And it needs life. We've got to go work for life before we can come back to worship him. Live it with believers. This is about a a believer, brother, sister kind of relationship. But another practical way is with our adversaries. One thing to do it with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's another thing now. Jesus ups the ante even more. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. 
Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you'll not get out until you have paid the last penny. This idea of adversary, this is not, in the original language, this is not a, a, a Christian. This is someone who is not a believer. This is someone you have outside of the church an issue with. You owe them a debt, or you have a dispute with them. Jesus says, you're not to get to court. He says, you are to settle it before you get to court. Not only could it go poorly for you, but you could get thrown into jail until you pay it back. And he's saying this, if you go all the way to, we're going to have to settle this thing, not just you and me, but have somebody else deal with it, I believe what he's saying is, you are allowing death to rule the relationship, not life. If you're saying, I'm going to allow it to go further as far as it is dependent on you. Now realize, there may be times when you're doing everything you can to settle something and it's just not working out. And you've given and given and given. But if there is any possibility of you being able to make it right, to do what you can. So today, if you have a dispute with an adversary, unbeliever, believer, work to settle the debt owed to bring life to it. Not because somebody else is bringing life to it, but because you have done what you can. The best, as far as it depends on you, Paul says in Romans 12, to work it out with them. Live it practically with believers and with adversaries. In both of these illustrations, and then we'll come to a conclusion together this morning. In both of these illustrations, Jesus emphasizes the need for both immediate and quick action. Don't delay. Mend broken relationships quickly. Work for peace. Work for love and relationships with others. Not allowing things like division and anger to fester and grow. Because where division and anger and hostility are, death is. And we're people of life. And it's equal in God's eyes to murder. It's not just the action of murder, but it's the thought, the word, and the attitude of the heart. People of the kingdom are people who live counterculturally by seeking not to live in division, but are seeking to live in peace with others. In the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning, blessed are the peacemakers. And when disagreement exists, they are people of life who do not hold anger in their heart against another and who refrain from speaking insults against them. Even if the relationship remains broken, that anger would not remain and that we would not result to insult of another. So friends, hear me on this. Be free to disagree with others. Whether it be theologically, politically, morally, or in some other venue. But be sure to remain focused on the difference of belief only. Friends, you and I should have warning bells by the Holy Spirit that are set off the moment our disagreement becomes personal. And you're no longer able to separate the person from their belief, or the person 
from what they did. Because if we are not able to separate that, this is what they believe, this is what they did, this is not who they are. If we can't separate those, according to Jesus, if I'm reading what he is saying right, according to Jesus, if it becomes anger and insult and personal, we become in danger of judgment. We should be people, and we need to be people, who have relationships with others despite our differences. Despite our differences. Parents should be able to have relationship with their children in spite of their differences. And even on Mother's Day, it's a hard one to hear. And, you know, I'll just say, I think if we look back generationally, I think we make a pretty good case that every generation has something that the children and the parents, just in their thinking, are not lining up on. Every generation, I believe, parents would say, we didn't raise our kids to think like that. We didn't raise our kids to act like that. And if you're in a place where you as a mother or a father are today saying, we didn't raise, I didn't raise my child to think or to act like that. Just know that you are not the anomaly. Every generation, I believe. Think about you and where your parents thought and where your parents expected. You probably had times where you were like, they were like, what in the world? Where are you coming from? You're out of your mind. Don't you get it? I believe every generation of parent to children on and on and on and on, has something. The question is, are we going to allow it to cause anger? Are we going to allow it to cause frustration to the point where we can no longer have relationship? So whether it be parent with children, extended families, neighbors, co-workers, or even our fellow Americans, may the beliefs and the actions not become personal. You may have heard along the lines of, uh, or along the pa- in the past about the relationship between Jerry Falwell and Larry Flint. Two people, just a little background, Jerry Falwell, Baptist preacher, the founder of Liberty University, the found, one of the founders of the Moral Majority. Larry Flint, the founder of Hustler Magazine. Larry Flint had some terrible cartoon kind of thing, accusation that was, true, that was untrue against Jerry Falwell, and Jerry Falwell sued him for like $43 million. Larry Flint said, this is just the First Amendment. I can speak. And Jerry Falwell said, oh, it's a causing me emotional distress. And they sued, and all the way through, Jerry Falwell was winning. You can't do this, can't do this, can't do this, till it came to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, it is Larry Flint's First Amendment right to be able to express anything, even if it causes emotional distress against a person. And he won this landmark case. Now, nine years, no talk. They were at each other all the time during all those court things. Nine years later, Jerry Falwell reaches out to Larry Flint and says, we should go on the Larry King Live show and we should have a conversation. 
Larry Flynn's like, what in the world is this guy? He hates me. I hate him. What in the world are we going on? And they go and they have this conversation. They end up having these debates on morality and First Amendment rights and all these things. They would travel around. They'd have these debates back and forth. Turned out, they started sending Christmas cards to one another. (laughs) Whenever Jerry Falwell was in Los Angeles where Larry Flint was, they would get together for a couple hours and just talk about their families. They would share each other and try to convince each other that they were wrong, but they had what Larry Flint described as an actual friendship. Nicholas Goldberg, in an article about this, after Larry Flint died in 2021, says this, for years after all of this stuff happened, Flint and Falwell would meet when Falwell was in L.A. They exchanged Christmas cards. Flint said and had philosophical discussions. Falwell showed off pictures of his grandchildren, and they always disagreed about politics. Larry Flint wrote this. I'm never sure, I'm sure I never changed his mind about anything, just as he never changed mine. He was definitely selling brimstone religion, and he would do anything to add another member to his mailing list. But in the end, I knew what he was selling, and he knew what I was selling, and we found a way to communicate. Now, what I find interesting in that is the person who initiated all of that was the Christian of the two. And I wonder... There's all kinds of things I'm sure we could delve into, those, both of those guys. But I wonder this. What would happen if two people so opposed to each other, in spite of their differences, were actually able to sit down and find, where's our common ground and how can we actually communicate with one another? Because friends, if we can't even communicate with one another when we have differences, I think Jesus is saying something to us. Because that relationship between the two of us, if we can't even communicate, that relationship is dead. And I believe as believers, we are the ones who killed it. We could say, oh, they killed it by what they did. But no, we as believers, I believe the onus is on us. We're the ones following after our king. And this is what Jesus says it looks like in the kingdom. So may we be people who live counter-culturally people who recognize anger in my heart, insult of another, when I disagree, when I don't like what they do, is akin to murder. And may we be people who say radically, Lord, would you give me grace to forgive? Would you give me grace to be quick to listen and slow to speak? slow to anger, and would you give me grace that when I go to bed every night, I can say I'm going to bed without anger in my heart towards another person. And Lord, would you give me grace not to describe them, others, according to what they believe or what they do. But may they be people who you love, created in your image and likeness, who you love and you want relationship with just as much as you love me. That's where life is. That's where life is. We are called to be people of life. 
who we are. We sang this morning, hell lost another one. We were dead. I am free. We're free in life. He's given us his life. May we live in it. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the commandments that you give to us. Your commandments bring life to us. May we not just settle for outward obedience, but may we go after what Jesus said. (laughs) You've heard it said, but I tell you, may we take seriously the teachings of our King, that we would be people of life, without anger in our hearts, steering clear of insults of others. May we be different, Lord. May we be able to have relationships with those who disagree with us or those who don't act the way we would act. May we be like Jesus, still being able to say, I disagree, but still be able to have relationships. May we be people who show there's a better way, a way that leads to life. Thank you, Jesus, that you did this perfectly. Teach us to do it as you did. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,